Madeline from Midwife. David Nance. Seth Graham. Kiaville. Mike from Uniform. Lee Noble. Braden J. Welcome to the Tome to the Weather Machine podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Hall, and in this interview, I chat with Danielle Rager, who records under the name Arsonist about her early prog rock musical inspirations and the transition between playing in classical music ensembles to the broader world of experimental music. Arsonist tape, Reality Structures, came out on Unifactor Tapes earlier this year, and it's hands down one of my favorite records I've heard. So, here's the interview. Ryan Hall with Tome to the Weather Machine. I'm talking to Dr. Danielle Rager uh, from her home in Pittsburgh. And yeah, we're just going to kind of get started. Um, Danielle, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Olney, Maryland, which is a suburb outside of the D.C. area. Got it. And what for those who are unfamiliar with um, the D.C. suburbs, can you kind of describe what kind of place that was? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I would say that it's it's very affluent. Um, in particular, the the counties that I grew up in were known for. Um, so one, actually, the, I'll highlight the cool parts maybe first. The cool yeah. parts about being there. It's extremely diverse um, in terms of the population. Uh, I went to a high school in which there was no uh, majority ethnicity, and that's a really cool experience because. By contrast, being in Pittsburgh, I will say we're a lot less diverse by comparison. So I really enjoyed, you know, being around so many different types of people. DC is very multicultural. Um, but uh, yeah, on on there are many great things about that. Um, for example, PG County, which was next to the county that I grew up in, uh, I believe they used to be uh, the most uh, the county with the most affluent black population. Um, so that was pretty cool because it was like, I don't know, that I, I didn't in my head grow up with quite as much of a misconception about class disparity and ethnicity. Um, but in general, I would say the area was relatively wealthy, had relatively good school districts, and um, that had its pros and cons. Uh, with that, I think, comes a lot of entitlement um, and a bit of a vanilla cultural vibe, I would say, um, particularly because uh, I think DC is very, the, the suburbs around DC especially are very transitory. Um, lots of people move to DC for government jobs and uh, sometimes don't, it, there's basically a constant kind of influx outflux of people that's very professionally oriented. Um, and I think because of that, it's, it doesn't, DC doesn't always feel like the, or the suburbs at least, don't always feel like kind of the richest cultural or quirkiest place. Uh, it's like a lot of suburban chains and stuff, basically. <laughs> yeah, I grew up in Littleton, Colorado, which is like a very white suburb of Denver. So you kind of, you know, like, the strip malls and uh, chain restaurants being surrounded. So it's it's inter interesting that you kind of mentioned the the diversity of um, Washington D.C. suburbs in kind of like um, macro level social work, which is kind of where I'm oriented. Uh, the D.C. suburbs were one of the first suburbs to have to really uh, focus on um, mixed income. Um, so like ma mandating that any new development um, at least have 25% uh, 
um, affordable housing. And so, so some of the surrounding DC counties have really been kind of held up as doing that like quite well. So even though, um, you know, DC definitely like the surrounding suburbs, um, you know, the, the downtown city center is a completely different story and has changed a lot, you know, in that time, but kind of the, the surrounding suburbs, which can, you know, traditionally, you know, white flight, you know, very monolithically, you know, affluent, wealthy, upper class. Um, it's kind of been held up as like a pretty good model of, of how like mi mixed income um, affordable housing development can work. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like I said, I guess to be, to, to paint a full picture, you know, it's, they, I, I certainly did notice that in the multiculturalism, I very much appreciated. Um, I, I think it was just, I guess I just noticed it by contrast coming to Pittsburgh, which is more of like a blue collar rust belt city that the vibe among the average person was much different and seemed a lot less polished than yeah, in the yeah. DC suburbs. But yeah, I, I we'll get there in a, in a sec, but I'm really interested to kind of hear your uh, take on kind of moving to the rust belt because yeah, it's, it's, it's a vibe. <laughs> it's a whole vibe. <laughs> um, so when you were growing up, um, what can you remember being significant like musical moments or, or, or like can you remember early musical discoveries or kind of what was being played in the house? Yeah, I mean, so my, uh, I think from the time, you know, my parents took home movies of me when I was like three, four, and I was literally like singing and performing in like the half of them. I think I was just always kind of music obsessed. Um, my dad was a big classic rock fan. Um, and so I grew up with a lot of that and came to like a lot of that music. Um, I remember in particular, I mean, I had heard, I had heard from him a lot of the big classics the zeppelin and the pink floyd and the, he was really into neil young um really like sly and the family stone and a lot of stuff that edged more into funk which was cool um and soul but i i have a particular memory of uh being in the car because he would always listen to the classic rock station when we were in the car and uh i was probably like 10 or 11 and Ziggy Stardust came on by David Bowie and I was immediately like I asked him because he had pretty good knowledge of music I was like who is that and I was just like blown away by this stuff that was a little bit proggier and more out there and orchestrated and I guess that's then that really that kind of music really took off for me um so that's one of my earliest classic rock memories, I guess. <laughs> so you, you went through a, a big glam rock phase pretty pretty early? Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I liked glam rock a lot from a pretty early age. And then I guess by the time I got into high school, that had evolved more into like prog stuff, which in my head is kind of linked. I feel like they're not always linked, but I don't know, just this idea of things being like very epically composed and orchestrated, I feel like was... I was into that because I guess to to circle back. So on the other side of the influence, um, my mom was not as big of a rock or pop person, um, but she listened to a lot of classical. And I, I started as a classical violinist before I ever made any other sort of music. And I was very serious about that all the way through college. Um, so. Yeah, so I was in a lot of orchestras and, and hearing a lot of classical music as well. And um, I definitely, also from a fairly young age, I guess, I, I was particularly drawn to uh, both the romantic period and like the 20th century music that was super well known. I mean, at the time when I was like, you know, a 12, 13 year old kid, I wasn't listening to super out there stuff. I wasn't like sitting at home listening to Scalzi. I don't know if anybody is doing that at that age. Um, but like Shostakovich and that kind of stuff that was, you know, a part of the canon, but more contemporary, that was the stuff I was super fascinated by. So I think that trickled over into my rock interests. Any, any rock that was kind of seemed highly composed and had a lot of instrumentation and, you know, crazy chord colorings, it reminded me of the stuff I was playing in classical music. And I liked that a lot. Yeah, I can definitely see kind of a crossover there. So in high school, you said you, you were really into prog rock. What were some of your 
your prog rock faves? I mean, I love Soft Machine and uh, the whole Canterbury scene. Uh, they that whole kind of era probably remains um, my favorite. I mean, obviously, like I feel like King Crimson is the you know gateway to to Prague for everybody. Not that gateway is a bad thing. It's they're awesome, so it would be fine if you stayed there too. But um, yeah, I don't know. Canterbury scene's probably my favorite, but. <laughs> So uh, this is maybe going off in a different direction, but like when I think of like really tightly like orchestrated like rock from that era, my mind always goes to like Meatloaf. Like was, <laughs> was that was that ever something that you got into? Because like that that like I mean to me that's like romantic, you know? Like yeah, I mean it's true. That's like rock it's and like roll. yeah, that's that's very true. Um, I don't know that I was particularly a huge meatloaf fan but i can i can get behind the orchestral element of it i guess my dad was really into elo which is okay. oh my God. like yeah. similar yeah same thing yeah so um so yeah i guess i listened to more elo than cool. than meatloaf but i Res feel like it's a similar vibe yeah, yeah. respectful <laughs> now going the totally opposite direction and, and maybe this is later on in life but did you get into like some of the more kind of out there japanese prog like uh, not or in, like the or the, even some like the German stuff like magma and like Zool and stuff. Not until much later, to be honest. My knowledge of the German stuff is still probably lacking compared to where it could be. I did get into the Japanese stuff, but I would say that wasn't until like later in college. Yeah, yeah, that that, that you're 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 gone by that point. You're <laughs> <laughs> deep down the rabbit hole. Um, so. So you were listening to a lot of prog rock, but also you said playing violin in like orchestras so you, through high school. Yeah, um, I was I was in all of the like county and state orchestras and did it pretty competitively for a while. Um, and to be honest, youth orchestras play a lot of like strictly canon music, um, meaning, you know, like I said, it's it's not necessarily the craziest classical that you end up playing as a youth orchestra. but um, but yeah, I mean, I, I liked, I liked the crazier part of the canon that I was exposed to, and then we might be getting ahead of ourselves, but it was, uh, in, in college when I got to University of Pittsburgh, um, I played in their orchestra, um, and the orchestra director, it was also my violin teacher, and that was a really big influence for me because, um, Pittsburgh still, uh, has this kind of new music group that he was a major mm. part of that really celebrates living composers. And so that was one of the first times that uh, even it was really cool on the university orchestra, he would push these compositions that were by people that were still alive. And I liked that a lot because it felt like classical still had this kind of living, breathing soul to it. And you definitely got to hear some of the weirder, more contemporary works. Yeah, so maybe we could, I'll, I'll ask two questions. One, can you remember um, in in high school or kind of growing up, like a really kind of pivotal classical piece that you remember playing and like why you respond to that? And then later kind of as you are being introduced to kind of like, you know, quote unquote, new, mu you know, new music, what kind of really inspired you kind of in that, like in, in that era or kind of in, with contemporary composers? Yeah. Um... I think, so when I was growing up, I mean, I remember the first piece that I spent a long time studying as a solo violinist that I liked a lot was Lalo's Symphony Espanol, um, because, I mean, that's not even crazy modern. I think it's probably 1800s, so it's more like, you know, romantic-ish era, um, but it was at least a change from when you're first kind of coming up as a classical player, you play a lot of like Mozart and, and Bach and, and that kind of um, Baroque and classical era. And I didn't dislike that stuff, but it, I, it didn't have as much of a pull on me as the kind of more dramatic, uh, schmaltzier, stuff I guess and Lala's Symphony Española is definitely that so that was probably the first piece that I spent a long time studying that I was really passionate about um 
And then my favorite violin concerto, which I still haven't learned all the way through, although it's quite difficult, um, all throughout high school was the Sibelius violin concerto, which um, is kind of crossing a line between like nationalistic era and more contemporary 20th century music. Um, so I don't remember if that answered your original question. But. No, definitely. And then, um, so kind of moving into like these new music circles, can you remember something that you were exposed to like by that, like by that teacher that um, really kind of like blew your mind? Yeah, I mean, so the problem is, unfortunately, I mean, I feel terrible for saying this, but like all the people who are actually still alive, we would only play these short pieces by them. And I'm terrible with remembering any of their names. Um, I do remember even, I mean, this is one of the earliest memories when I first joined the orchestra, I think the first semester, we played a piece by Ives. And even that is not really that like crazy because obviously Ives is, I don't, Ives is not alive, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I'm like, should I Google this? I mean, he's, that's way too old for him to be alive. Um, but yeah, that's like early 20th century and it's not really even that left field, but compared to what I had been playing in, in youth orchestras, to get to play Ives was still like, oh, this is something our conductors never would have picked. So sure. I remember that left a big impression on me. Yeah. Can you remember anything uh, around that time? Like maybe as you were, I mean, cause soft machine for a lot of people is like pretty, pretty difficult stuff. I mean, <laughs> like, <laughs> this is, yeah, uh, that's, yeah, can be pretty challenging. Can you remember some like maybe left of center or maybe like kind of es more esoteric uh, music so if, musicians and stuff that you got into? Yeah, so if we're talking the era of like late high school going into college, um, I was probably, I was most interested in, um, yeah, kind of largely orchestrated weird chord progression stuff I would say so that's kind of where the Canterbury scene fit in on the other hand I was I was really into a lot of um singer-songwriter music from the 70s that fit that bill um so like uh the Joni Mitchell albums from the early 70s that are kind of heavily orchestrated in that way um Leonard Cohen's era from that stuff um kind of the I'm terrible with album names, so I'd have to think about what it is. But the first one he has that's kind of not just him in an acoustic guitar has like all this crazy instrumentation. Um, and then I got really into Joanna Newsome um, when she was a big deal. So like folk, um, kind of heavily orchestrated folk, I guess I would say was like left of center. Um, but. And then at what point did you start uh, kind of playing your own compositions? Um, and how did that uh, evolve? Was it always kind of the arsonist stuff that you that you do, or, or has that evolved? No, not at all. So now we're going to get into, um, so in this whole era, I'm listening to like literally zero electronic music. I, I didn't, I didn't, I like flat out didn't like electronic music. Um, I would go so far as to say that I, I would literally come, because I guess the only stuff I had been hearing um, or that I was really familiar with was like very kind of straightforward techno type sounds. And I really just didn't get it. I mean, part of it is probably at that age, you you can't really go to the club. So I feel like you're missing a huge part of the environment that makes that music what it is. Um, but yeah, beyond- Yeah, definitely unlocks a lot of things for you. <laughs> like, oh, I get it now. <laughs> but even beyond that, I mean, I was literally the person from that era who would go, like, I I'm like ashamed to say this now, but I, I didn't think there was, like, I really didn't understand what was involved in production. I, I was really one of those people that was like, why don't they just play instruments? Like I, I didn't, I didn't get why you would ever choose to make electronic instruments or to make electronic music instead of just learning those parts on an instrument. And so I would say the pivotal moment there, which is actually from what I've heard from a lot of other people, a really weird way to get into electronic. But um, in early college, one of my best uh, friends, Tom, was really into a lot of uh, IDM and breakcore. And 
Oh, that's that the best was, way. That's the best way to get into it. <laughs> that was, for some reason, when it really clicked. And I think it was because the rhythms were so crazy. Like, the, you know, you listen to these snares and there's these insane drum things happening. And for some reason, it suddenly clicked that, like, there is no human doing that. Like, that's why they're using this tool. Like, there's no drummer that's drumming like this IRL. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, yeah, I guess that's that's when the idea of being able to... And I guess then it, it started to click in an early way, though maybe not completely, that electronic music could be used as this composition tool to kind of expand the capabilities of what people are possible of producing. I think mm -hmm. that's kind of when the light bulb went off and when I got interested in listening to music of that sort. But yeah, Hrvatsky, Swarm and Dither, I would say was like the earliest album that I was really obsessed with um, on an electronic level. Nice. And so when did you start kind of making music kind of more informed by like the electronic music that you were listening to? That still didn't really come until much later. Um, so I didn't really start making this. I was doing, I wasn't really writing any of my own music until college. I was pretty much just listening to stuff. Um, and then in college, I was a, a minor in music. And so I was writing uh, compositions for my program and just because I liked doing it. And so I was scoring more straight up uh, chamber music. I mean, it was contemporary stuff, but it was literally, you know, string quartets, things of that nature. Um, and I really liked doing that. Uh, and I still actually really love those sounds. I mean, that's probably pretty obvious in a lot of the music that I make now, but uh, writing sheet music for, for real people to play is quite a process um, because, it's it's just so hard to get someone to invest enough time in learning all the parts that you've written and then they have to rehearse it a bunch and then you have to do the recording and it's like a very drawn out process to get your compositions to where they are so I, fast forwarding that's one of the reasons why i like what i do now because it's a lot like composing but i can just control all the parts myself and it's much faster <laughs> um, but yeah so i was really only writing chamber compositions and then um when I first started trying to make my own music that wasn't straight classical, it was honestly like singer songwriter stuff. I mm -hmm. like writing lyrics. And like I said, I was super into like Joanna Newsom and those kind of people. And I really thought that that was the direction I was going to go. Um, and then I don't know when it fully clicked the electronic stuff. I will say one of, probably one of my, earliest influences which is still one of my favorite albums of all time uh is one of tricks point nevers uh r plus seven. Oh yeah and um <laughs> i i still have a deep deep love and obsession for that album um people have compared my i i don't think this is nearly on the same level but people have compared my sound to that and and i think it's probably just because i show my influences on my sleeve but yeah i think that was, that was one of the first things I heard that kind of this more amorphous, melodic, electronic music that felt very much like an extension of the classical things that I had been composing. It was, it was maybe the first album that stuck with me as an electronic album that was something I felt like I wanted to produce myself. Um, because the break core stuff and the IDM stuff, when I was listening to it, I thought it was really cool. But at the time, it, I felt very far from that. It wasn't music that I saw myself personally in. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny, now that's come around more and I've gotten more interested in, in the rhythmic material. But at the time, it was just so far from the classical stuff I had been writing. Um, yeah. So well, yeah, you know, maybe that, that was an early influence, sorry. <laughs> no, and, and that album, I mean, is... Has, also has like just so much kind of human emotion in it you know it's it's very uh i mean not only is it like really kind of using like the concept of like midi as like composition you know like this like insane comp compositional tool where you can just like right. explode any sound into like this wild 
like melodic and like rhythmic thing that's all over the place. But also it's like, it's, it's, um, has enough of like a strong melodic pool that like, yeah, it's like, you know, there's like sadness and wistfulness and nostalgia kind of like all. Exactly. I mean, it has these, it has these melodic, I don't know, it, it reminded me so much of melodic themes that I was hearing in symphonic material. Like there's MIDI riffs in that album that I think are just completely memorable as a melodic line. And it struck me as exactly the type of thing that you look for when you're kind of waiting for that punch moment in a symphony that there's just this beautiful melodic line that pops out of nowhere in this yeah. chaos. And um, yeah, I think that album's really special. <laughs> it's great. So you were listening to, um, a, so kind of that, so you moved to Pittsburgh. What, like what year did you move to Pittsburgh when you started your undergrad? That would have been 2008. Eight. Okay. Yeah. So at that time you were kind of doing some more like kind of more singer songwriter stuff. Were you playing out at all? Like in Pittsburgh, were you connected no. to like that? I, so I really only was playing uh, classical performances until probably what I was like, 25 26 mm -hmm. um it was exclusively classical performances and then around that time the first group that i started playing out with i was telling you earlier offline about um my good friend susan who's now in the la area but um so susan was a graduate student um in a related program to mine and um i would see her all the time at these new classical events in in Pittsburgh and she was one of the only classmates that I saw that was out right. at these kind of weird classical concerts and so we started talking very quickly and um she's an amazing pianist and she's really into improvisation and that was something that I had always actually kind of clammed up with and mm. struggled with mm -hmm. uh I could never even once I was writing my own music like like chamber music it all had to be written out I like I would have this complete clam up moment if I was ever supposed to play anything that wasn't kind of written out. And she really broke me out of that shell. And so we started just kind of jamming, if you can call that, that in a new classical sense where she would play on piano and I would play on violin. Um, and that evolved into kind of this electroacoustic new classical project that we had called Diaphony. Um, and so we started gigging out with that. Like I said, when I was in like my mid twenties in the middle of graduate school. And then mm -hmm. a year or two later was when I kind of started the solo stuff as arsonist. And what kind of performances um, would those be? Would those be like, uh, I mean, were those kind of more kind of new music adjacent performances or would they be like DIY no noise show? It was a mix actually. Okay. Um, I mean, Pittsburgh is, kind of nice in that way and that there is some scene crossover so we we were really only in existence gigging out for maybe a year and a half two years before susan left um and so it was everything from um i mean we played like art gallery stuff downtown to we played voice of the valley um, oh, cool. one year <laughs> so awesome. it was it was definitely a, a range um and certainly had plenty of basement shows in that time <laughs> and during that time were you were you going to shows i mean it sounded like you were pretty pretty busy as well i mean music was your minor you know <laughs> yeah well so this is we're sorry I'm jumping all around so no, it's okay. diaphony was graduate school okay. so music was my minor in undergraduate mm -hmm. um in undergraduate I would say I was not really going to many shows that were not classical um sure. I would occasionally go to um so Pittsburgh actually has a like a long history of drum and bass stuff oh, uh, really? we had one of the longest running drum and bass nights that was a regular night here and that was still happening when i was at the end of undergraduate so that same friend that introduced me to uh all the idm and break core i would i would occasionally go to those type of events with him on the electronic side so you um, just dove right in <laughs> you're like like no electronic music below like 200 bpm for yeah me. and I'm, i think i'm kind of <laughs> still like that probably uh yeah I definitely like 
I like fast electronic music. Uh, well, fast or ambient. It's like yeah, one or the other yeah, yeah. and nothing in between. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah. So Cincinnati, oddly enough, um, has still to this day, I, it's waned off a lot, um, but has an amazing break coursing. Like back nice. in like 2008, you know, like uh, not too far from where you were, like Realicide was happening, like this like major, you know, like uh, internationally known like break core. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Realicide's was, very cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, so Robert still like does, uh, is still very active and, and actually has some really, really like RIP parties. Um, but uh, some really fun kind of like break core kind of centric like parties at his house. Um, so yeah, um, but so that's, that's, I, I think that's interesting. Like, you know, the way that you're oriented and the way that you kind of come in to certain things um, can really like flavor, you know, where like the direction that you go. Um, yeah, certainly, uh, like my my introduction to electronic music was like what I thought of electronic music was like what was really popular kind of in like the like what was on the radio in like the, the late 90s so like Chemical Brothers and like kind of that, that yeah. big beat kind of stuff which was like all very like sample based and mm -hmm. and stuff and so um I was always very intrigued by that idea it's like wait they're not actually playing those the like I, I always had like this big like veil over my eyes of like how like music was actually made you know, because I'm just like, wait, wait, wait. So not they're not playing that music, but they're like somehow taking like that music. And so I just like imagine them like with like microphones up to like boom boxes, like because that's the only way that I could like think of like. No, I know what you mean. Like when I first listened to breakcore, like I said, I was like completely confused about like the concept of breaks, like that people had yeah. samples of breaks. Like, I was like, how? Like, yeah, I was like, yeah. I was like, what is this? Like, yeah. <laughs> Nice. Um, yeah, I, I kind of love that. And I, and um, as you know, like I, I play music now. I'm like very, like even like very late in life, you know, like as the most people do, like I'm starting to kind of create music and it's still like blowing my mind. I'm just like, oh my God, that's how like they do that. Like, you know, like you get that, you know, kind of stereo, like I'm, so I'm like learning Ableton right now during kind of quarantine right now. And just, yeah, just learning how, like, how, like, an LFO works. I'm just, like, I never knew that, like, as long, like, for, like, <laughs> listening and writing about, like, writing about m experimental music for, like, 10 years, I, like, just now got that concept of, like, how LFO works and just, like, oh, my God, that's why I'm, like, get that kind of woozy kind of, like, feeling when I listen to this kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, it's still, it's all magic. It's, it's still really cool. <laughs> um, and, I, and I hope that, like, you know, learning... But it sounds like from people that I've talked talked to, and I'm, I don't think this is going to be the case, but like it never quite lo like loses that magic. Even if you like understand precisely kind of like how somebody's doing it, it's still uh, incredible. Yeah, I I agree with you. I think that you know particularly when if you have an end product of music that's like I don't know. I had I knew someone that was like really opposed to learning about the interworkings of production because they they wanted to stay strictly a music appreciator which I, de I definitely respect I mean not everyone needs to produce music there's a lot of it already but it was almost this like militant like I don't want to know about how it's made because I think the magic will be gone and I was always kind of like no man like I yeah. feel like the more I learn the more I'm just amazed when I hear something new and different and you know it's it's not like I'm constantly thinking about the tools every time I yeah. hear a sound. <laughs> or that still something so simple um, that you could describe to anybody is still like, ha st can still like blow you away. You know, like uh, I was thinking a lot about um, uh, Ar Arvo part this week. Somebody asked me to do like the 10 album thing. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I remember the first time I, I listened to Arvo part, um, and just like that Furlina, you know, it's like three notes and yeah. just how much you can just like ring from that. Like anybody can understand what he's doing there, you know? Right. But still like the, the, what he's able to do just with like this, like just the tiniest little movements of building this thing into like this uh, just overwhelming emotional experience, I think is still incredible. Um, 
yeah, there's so many moments where the, I mean, you know, to be cliche or whatever, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And even, I think even when you're the one making it, you have those moments, at least I do, where it's like, you, you just know when it hits, like you put a bunch of things together and you're like, holy shit, all of a sudden this is like, this is yeah. not any of these components. This is this like greater being that I feel like I don't even have complete control over anymore because somehow the combination of these things is just really working in a way that I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's cool. I mean, so much of that is like uh, left up to kind of chance in a way. Like you're, like you, you, you bring to it what you know and you kind of roll the dice a little bit. Yeah. And yeah. So talking about like kind of your, your approach now to like electronic music, um, when did you start recording uh, or writing music under Arsonist? Uh, well, I feel like in part, I have to give Kevin, my partner, definitely credit for, for pushing me there because uh, at the time we weren't even dating, we were just friends, but um, so he was running Cosmic Sound, uh, which is a, a group here in Pittsburgh. Uh, we put on a bunch of experimental leaning shows. I would say it's predominantly experimental electronic, just because we know so many of those artists. But we do we do weird jazz stuff and lots mm -hmm. of other stuff too. Um, but yeah, he was putting together a festival. And I think he had originally asked if Diaphany could play because he was familiar with my duo, my electric acoustic duo. And if I remember the story correctly, we couldn't for some reason because Susan had another work-related obligation. And Kevin said, well, I know you've been like toying around with, you know, solo stuff that's more electronic leaning. Like, do you still want to play? And <laughs> I've always been very what I'll call deadline driven meaning like I arguably should not have said yes to a show because I, I had no idea what I was going to play when I said yes it was like not a show's worth of repertoire that I had but I I kind of like being pushed off the cliff and forced to do something so I was like yeah sure I'll put together a set <laughs> um, and I I mean a lot of the sounds I think just really came together in that like month of of preparation and uh I guess people people liked this combo of kind of pseudo orchestral somewhere between like orchestrated electronic and and noise and you know I don't know whatever it is I do and it took off pretty quickly from there um I mean that gig was only what two two and a half years ago uh it was the first solo show I had ever played live so that's pretty crazy to think that's about. amazing but <laughs> <laughs> and so since then um how how much is of Arsonist is like a recording project versus like a live project. I know you've been, you know, pretty busy uh, as yeah, of late. Yeah, <laughs> well, and it's, it's funny because um, I think the history of it versus how I think of myself might be very different. Meaning it is a little bit weird that it definitely started as a performance project in part just because I said yes to that gig. I didn't really have enough material even to do one gig and I, I did I literally kind of made it for the show and then people started asking me to do more gigs because they liked that and I was literally just making material for live shows that had never been released anywhere and that happened for well over a year to the point where I had no recorded stuff and I was just playing out um, and because of that, the first album that I released, self-released, is actually a recording from a live set that I particularly liked because um, I guess I, I personally still actually kind of like the, the recording side of it. So that's where it's, it's funny that this is the story, but I get quite obsessive about the recording part of it. And so people kept asking when I was playing these live shows, when are you going to put out a release? When are you going to put out a release? And I kind of wanted to take my time with it and and be kind of type A about it. And um, so that's kind of what led to releasing that live set because people were looking for for something they could find on online that was indicative of what I had been doing out. Um, and in the meantime, I was working on Reality Structure, uh, 
which obviously came out at the beginning of this year. Um, but yeah. Awesome. We, Reality Structure is such a great record. I love it. <laughs> Thank um, you. I, I, you know, usually, uh, you know, pick up anything that um, Unifactor puts out and, um, you know, they, they usually have some very, you know, thoughtfully curated batches. And I thought, you know, your tape especially was, was really, really great. How did you get hooked up with, uh, with like Unifactor and Jason? And <laughs> so that's a funny story too, because um, maybe, I don't even know if I've told the story in this exact version of Jason, which is hilarious. But um, so I had no, I actually knew of Unifactor, but I had no idea. I hadn't met Jason and I did, definitely didn't realize that the drummer from Cloud Nothings was the guy who ran Unifactor. Exact um, same story. I'm going to tell you mine <laughs> after this. <laughs> um, so I get contacted out of the blue by email because I had released this live at Altered tape that was on Bandcamp that was doing reasonably well for like a self-release live release. And, and he, well, actually Cloud Nothings just, I think, I, I don't remember who it was from the group that emailed me, but they were playing a show in Pittsburgh and they asked if I would open the show and I knew who Cloud Nothings was. And I just like, I couldn't figure this out at all. I was like extremely confused. Cause I was like, I mean, Cloud Nothings is definitely like a cool indie rock band. I don't understand what I have to do with them. I don't understand why they want me to open up this like, you know, very large show. Like nothing about this made sense. And I still hadn't put those pieces together, I think, at the time that I played it. And the funny part was, I actually, I don't know if I've told Jason this part, I hated that performance, <laughs> to be frank. The performance that I played opening for Cloud Nothings was like one of my least favorite performances I've ever done. And I was so mad because it was in front of, you know, a arguably larger audience than usual and I just walked off stage and I was like so pissed off I was like that was like terrible and Jason in particular was like I thought it was really cool and then like two days later emails me being like hey do you want to put a tape out on my label Unifactor and I was like wait what <laughs> yeah man I, th those guys are like total heads you know like all of those guys um so similar story, how I found out that Jason ran Unifactor is, is you know, I was a big fan of, of his um, tape patches. And then, you know, he messages me on, uh, on Facebook and is like, hey, we're going to be um, in Cincinnati tonight uh, playing Fountain Square. Um, like, do you want to like meet up after the show? And I'm just like, I'm like <laughs> so Fountain Square, so Fountain Square, to give you context, is in the heart of since like the downtown Cincinnati. It's this massive like outdoor uh, stage area where like walk the moon and shit plays, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm like, I was like racking my brain. I'm like, what could like, is Fountain Square doing noise shows now? Like what is <laughs> like, what is going on? And then like, I, I looked, I'm like consulted like, you know, like our city weekly, like what is happening on Fountain Square time? It's like cloud nothing. So I'm like, Cleveland, Jason, Unifa, oh shit, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, afterwards, you know, we, I got to hang out with everybody and, and then they came back through um, uh, you know, another time and played like a kind of a, a bigger, bigger venue. And um, yeah, uh, what I, I mean, all those guys, yeah, total, total heads. And, and it comes out like they do these, um, extended noise jams like like there's like one part in in their show where it's just like it's like a solid seven eight minutes of them just like all right we're like you know kind of letting our our freak flag fly a little bit and it's interesting to kind of see uh the crowd's reaction to that you know because yeah it's like, i agree and yeah. i i actually i really appreciate that they i i've learned that this is you know i i'm not just like a one-off that they they frequently have artists who are much more experimental than maybe the typical cloud nothing sound open for them. And I think it's cool that they continue to like push their fan base into the weirder music that they're into. I think not a lot of people would do that. <laughs> no, I, I so appreciate, uh, yeah, bands who do that, who get like some success and, and sort of, uh, but are always like, you know, like, they're part of the community, right? Like they, right, yeah, they, for they sure. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so yes, and, same story. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, what kind of what kind of DIY weirdo noise show is going on at like our part of our city? Um, <laughs> so okay, so I mean that kind of brings us up to the present. So reality structure was uh your latest release and and was that like your first kind of like per, that was like your first proper kind of non like self-released thing awesome. yeah on on anything but definitely as a solo artist yeah very cool are you working on anything now i, I mean we, we we allude to oh you've been really busy really busy but before we were recording you talked about you just defended your thesis <laughs> <laughs> yeah yes. yeah so to be honest i took uh many months off of making music because i sort of needed to buckle down and focus on the phd um because reality structure was actually done probably june or july of last year um and i pretty much took that whole time um to just finish up my thesis research and writing uninterrupted um, so I just finished and I'm starting to jump back in now. I've been playing a bunch of live streams um, because those have been super popular in these times. As I understand, we all need an outlet that's just, we can't go to shows anymore. Um, so I've kind of just been experimenting with uh, a bunch of sounds, again, in a kind of performance setting. Um, I'm not actually ever a person who, I, I could I would say I have at least one or two skeletons of tracks that I'm starting to put together now, but I don't really make much excess music that sits around. It kind of either sticks or I, I get bored with it and it's just like fragments and really isn't anything. So yeah, there's not much made right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm starting pretty fresh again by yeah, uh, well, jumping back in. <laughs> it's totally understandable. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, yeah, so that kind of uh, brings us to um, the present. Has there been anything recently that you've been listening to, um, like, more, like, that you've been getting into lately or more contemporary that has been really meaningful to you? And I'll add maybe another caveat to this. Was there anything that you found, um, like, are you somebody who listens to music while you study, while you write? Um, and what was... Um, can you remember something like during your your whole like writing your thesis that um like what, what what do you listen to when you write a thesis i i actually got i got quite into jazz when i was writing my thesis um more than than i had been listening to it for a long period i think in part that coincided with um i i moved in with Kevin maybe less than a year ago at this point. I can't remember about a year ago. Um, and I never had a, a record player or a record collection, um, but he has like a really huge record collection. And now that we have record players here at the house, I guess I started collecting. And to me, the most fun thing to like search for in old bins, I guess, are jazz records. Um, and so I feel like I, that kind of coincided with, yeah, just now if I go record shopping, a lot of what I'm looking for in old records is, is jazz stuff. Um, and it, it made really nice music to write to for the most part. Maybe not the craziest free jazz stuff that I like. It does, there is a point where <laughs> I like it for my active brain, but I like can't do stuff at the same time. Right. <laughs> um, but. Awesome. Well, cool. Uh, well, I think that's all the questions I have. Thanks. Um, Thank you so much for agreeing to chat with me. Um, I was trying to do these once a week, um, got a little off track, but um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's, it, we're in a very interesting time right now. And for some folks, this is um, a really good, really good outlet to kind of look forward to. And I think it's just an interesting kind of like timestamp to, to talk to people during this time, even though like I try not to, I don't, I'm not too interested in talking about like COVID-19, you know, just like you're inundated with all of that and yeah, it's, living I mean, it's, with that what day is there in to and day say out. say that people don't, yeah. aren't already living. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, uh, it, 
for some, you know, as we won't like belabor a point, but you know, for a lot of musicians who this is like their sole job or kind of their, you know, if their career is kind of music adjacent, um, you know, this has been a really, really tough time. And so, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a really, it's an interesting time to like, still feel like you're part of a community, like, uh, like a experimental music community of kind of like-minded folks. I think one thing that has been really cool is these live stream concerts. Um, I mean, just like last week, I got to see like, uh, like Matt Mose and like Susan Alcorn. And, you know, today I got to watch Yasmin Williams, you know, just it's, I think that's, it's, it's really cool. Yeah, it's definitely very cool that, um, I mean, I, I hope that the positive side of this, I certainly miss going to yeah. concerts in the flesh, but I actually hope that whenever we're out of this whole period that people might continue this trend to some extent and just find more of a balance between the live shows and still doing this kind of thing, because I really like that this enables you to tune into shows that you otherwise geographically would never Absolutely. be 100%. Catch. Um, and even just the chat communities surrounding these live streams, I guess oh, so I nice. really love that. Like, oh, it's just you, like, yeah. <laughs> you get to see all your friends online from like yeah. all the different cities. It definitely makes the experimental community seem a lot smaller. So. Yeah, definitely. I'm a big fan. But yeah, yeah you're right. I, I really do hope to be seeing my friends in the, in the flesh sooner than later. But, you know, we'll, we will, whatever happens, happens. And we'll uh do it again once it's safe to do so and we're not putting others at risk but until now we can uh we can tune into some really incredible very well curated um shows that otherwise we wouldn't be able to so well, awesome well thanks again for chatting i'm gonna go ahead and yeah